welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. We are going to be covering the Berlin Film Festival. It's in a kind of dual format. First, there's a press and industry European film market section happening now, uh, this first week of March, which is online, but we'll be presenting all of the lineup, as far as I know, but just not to the public. Uh, That will happen in the summer with, I think, the hope being it'll be in person, uh, a nice Berlin summer. Uh, But at the moment, the the whole slate is being unveiled and covered and, I guess, bought and sold. And critics are taking advantage of the chance to watch a ton of things. Besides myself, one of those critics, uh, who I'm happy to have join, is Jordan Kronk. Welcome back, Jordan. It's just been a couple episodes since you did your rundown of Rotterdam. Right. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. I, I appreciate it. My eyes are burning. So that must mean uh, it's time to take a break from the movies and maybe talk about them a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I was kind of just venting about the fact of having all these things at your fingertips. The potential is there to watch, you know, as many films as you see in person uh, and possibly more, depending on how much you need to eat or sleep. <laughs> but you were saying something interesting about how this affects the new sections uh, or just the kind of different arrangement of sections that were put into place last year and I think have really come into bloom this year. Yeah, the, uh, you know, the Berlinale is under new leadership as of last year, 2020. Carlo Chatrian is the new artistic director who previously ran Locarno for seven odd years, I think. And him and his programming team, led by Mark Parenson, came over uh, last year. Um, and they, I don't know, revamped the festival a little bit. They, of course, have a more, uh, or perceived to have a more uh, arty or cinephilic uh, sensibility. You know, they did away with a couple sections, added a new section, which is important that we'll talk about, called Encounters, and also maybe just uh, bolstered up the competition a little bit with some kind of, uh, you know, a tour names a little bit more. So that went into effect last year, and I think Berlin last year really kind of saved the year <laughs> for a lot of people and. You can look at the New York Film Festival and a a large chunk of their programming came from Berlin last year. You know, that was one of the last festivals prior to the the lockdown across the world. So, but they have obviously continued their programming stance uh, this year, even though they have a reduced lineup, I think of just like around 100 films. But like you were saying, kind of the 24 hour screening window, you have to prioritize the things you want to see. So for me, you know, having having this new section encounters, which is kind of a... uh, section for more adventurous and uh, boundary pushing cinema a lot of my attention tends to go there and obviously to the competition so less attention sometimes is paid to uh, let's say the forum which usually housed the boundary pushing adventurous filmmaking which they still do but they have less maybe uh, of the big names that they used to have and then there's a section like panorama which for me unfortunately tends to fall by the wayside because there's just no time to watch a lot of things i still try and catch what i can yeah, I mean, and, and just to clarify, with the 24-hour window, what it effectively means is that we get a different batch of movies each day, and they're available for 24 hours. And then the next 24 hours, it's a different batch, and you can't see the movies from the first batch. Um, and that's, that's just in distinction to Sundance, uh, for example, where... You could see all of the movies like right till the very end. And for Berlin, they went with this structure, which I guess in a way kind of simulates a festival in the sense that, I mean, there's a, you know, there's a limit. 
there's a kind of um, life to a movie and that's very much on a particular day. I think this is kind of going to be for at least the major festivals, at least, for example, if there's a can, a virtual can, which I think is a big if, but if there is, I think it'll kind of be like this too, where it's like a one day window because uh, I don't know the way TIFF and NIF and Sundance were doing it with like a larger screening window. I don't know if that is going to please all the sales companies and rights holders and things like that. So I think that's why this is happening. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I think we both agree that it's not, it's not really a complaint. It's, it's just a kind ends up being kind of like a thought experiment of, of what, what you would do when you're in this situation where you, you know, I guess each day is like mortality. <laughs> you have to make your choices <laughs> and then, and then the next day you are reborn. And, but I think what makes it a struggle this year is a testament to the strength of the programming. I mean, this this each day wouldn't be such a challenge if it weren't for the fact that pretty reliably there's more movies that I that I want to see than I can kind of comfortably or temporarily uh, see. Right. Maybe we can dive into them actually, um, since we there are, we do have a few um, we want to want to talk about. And I think it's it's only fair since as far as it goes, it's kind of a headliner for Berlin in terms of people expecting. I mean, last year we had a, a, a Hong Sang Soo movie there, and you know, already <laughs> uh, keeping up to his usual uh, paces of production, there is another one, and that is Introduction. This film is, uh, I guess, Hong's twenty-fifth feature. Like Nick said, it, it follows up um, the Woman Who Ran, which premiered in Berlin last year. This is, uh, I guess, a smaller film, at least as far as. The runtime is concerned. It's about 66 minutes, which is not uncommon for Hong. It's a little more small scale than even by his standards um, and shot in black and white, but deals with largely with a, with a young male character who um, like a lot of Hong protagonists trying to find his way in life. And he um, is uh, the son of a doctor and uh, he eventually, uh, or his girlfriend moves to Berlin. She wants to be an artist and he uh, eventually follows her out there. They don't see eye to eye anymore in their relationship, and they kind of go their separate ways. But she's kind of trying to be an artist, and she falls under the tutelage uh, of Kim Mini, who's uh, Hong's wife and the pro- protagonist of many of his recent films. Uh, so there's kind of a subplot with her moving in with uh, Kim, and then the male character kind of is trying to find his way. He, he's an aspiring actor, or was an aspiring actor, his mother tries to have this kind of intervention with him with an old actor friend who we glimpse earlier coming into the, his father's doctor's office. And this, so they have, you know, kind of a signature Hong mortifying drinks. And then you have like another kind of Hong-esque, what, it, what is a dream, what is not, that happens on a nearby beach. I forgot to mention uh, the, the, a friend he has who he brings to the lunch uh, with his mother and this actor, because I guess he's kind of wants to take the focus off himself, I guess, a little bit. Oh, yeah, again, all of that in like 65 minutes. One of the things I found interesting about the film, I guess, is that, you know, he's been working with largely female protagonists for like the last seven or eight years. And this has a has a female uh, co-lead at the very least. But the main character is a guy younger. I don't know if the two younger actors have worked with him before, but it's funny to see them as kind of the main characters and then the older characters or the adults are um, 
kind of the people who you see in most Hong films is the older guy from uh, Hotel by the River and uh, uh, Kimini, of course, is in most of his films. And she kind of plays the the older artist in the film. So there's a different dynamic, I guess, which might signal something new. But um, to me, I mean, I think the, the film is, is quite good. Never have anything bad to say about a Hong film. It feels kind of like one of the the smaller films he makes between the big films because he, the woman who ran the quite substantial film that premiered last year and that he follows that up with this kind of like he did with uh, grass after the day after and yourself and yours after right now, wrong then nothing against any of these movies are all very good, but I feel like sometimes there's a smaller stakes in some films than others, but that was uh, my impressions off, off a single viewing. Uh, to chime in with that, I agree that there there seems to be something a little different going on with the mix here. There was something about this particular aimless protagonist that was interesting. I mean, in a way, I found him sort of less appealing. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think he's kind of portrayed as someone who hasn't grown up, but also has this kind of air of a little bit of, I don't know, snobbishness to him. And there was, I think, a, an element of class in this as well. I mean, he seems... He seems like kind of in the mold of aimless rich kid in a way. Right. Um, and then likewise, she is like almost to the point of underdeveloped as as a character because she seems so a very like uh, impressionable, you know, college student. Both of their faults aren't necessarily blown up in the kind of way that, that, that they are in this tragic comic way that they often are in Hong films. There's a it's almost like an edge to it. And I don't know if that's like a generational thing. There's just something there where it doesn't feel as like, I don't know, laughed off as, as it, as it usually is. I don't Did you get that, that feeling too? There's just some little other thing going on. No, I think so. Um, there is one scene that I guess is the kind of centerpiece scene, which recent of his films have uh, kind of been structured around, but there's a great, the great scene with the older actor dressing him down the main the main male actor after he says he did you know he's, he wants to be an actor but he couldn't couldn't follow through with it because he couldn't kiss his female co-star on screen because he was embarrassed and that would ruin his relationship with, with the woman he was with and and the older the older actor goes on the kind of a drunken tirade as everyone loves in hong films <laughs> really goes after him and it, it's a really wonderful and amazing scene which kind of you know, like i said climaxes the film and then there's kind of like a, a a very short kind of couple scenes where there's like a dream sequence and a couple other moments with the main actor where he comes to grips with uh, his relationship. But yeah, I don't know if it, like I said, signals a, a new moment in, in Hong's career or not, but it uh, it's certainly a, obviously like a nice variation on all the themes and things he constantly works through. And I don't know, it's Hong, so it's pleasing from the very first shot to the end. Like every everything in Hong films are are just lovely and well done. It doesn't matter if it's 66 minutes or 96 minutes. It's always uh, beautiful and funny and kind of melancholy. His films sit with me and always feel different after the fact. Like even this one, about five days later or whatever it is, is uh, already resonating in different ways than when I was watching it. So I'm sure that'll be the case as we as we move along through the year. Yeah, that's, that's the same for me. Um... Yeah, and then just one final a note uh, on it. I mean, it, it's true that I mean it's kind of reliably pleasurable, and this one, you know, maybe more so even than some other Hong movies. There's always just his basic joy in the storytelling, the sense that there's a kind of glee in withholding from us just what little strange little micro event is going to come next, 
and what little way he's going to kind of upend our expectations. I mean, for one thing, just keeping opaque for a while what the relation is between different people, just even down to like what's going to happen next. You know, like when the protagonist, when they part ways or right, right at the beginning of the movie, um, as he he's going to visit his father, we don't even know that it's his father he's visiting. So there's this whole strange little suspense to it. It ends up setting up a nice kind of comic conceit. So it is a, a good hong for sure. <laughs> so yeah, that is uh, Introduction. I think for the next film that uh, we'll talk about, that is the movie that we are calling the Georgian film. And that's basically <laughs> because the title is uh, substantial. The full title is What Do We See When We Look at the Sky? Alexandra Kobaridze. He made a film, which I actually have not seen, but uh, it's called Let the Summer Never Come Again, which I was always on my list of things to see, but I never did. I played it first look, I know, in New York. This is a second feature. So the story of it, I'm not going to say how to describe the story because it's not even necessarily about the story. It's a strange polyphonic work. And also in the sense that music, music is just an, an enormous part of it. I would go as far as to say that music is almost on equal footing as anything else in in the movie. Yeah. Well, this is a two and a half hour movie. I guess the plot synopsis would be a guy and a girl kind of meet by chance on the street in like the first scene in front of a in front of a school. Uh, and then they make a date and when they re-meet the next day, they don't recognize each other or remember each other. But this kind of plot is very uh I guess, secondary to the things that you see and experience in the film. I'd venture to guess that maybe a third of the film deals with this actual plot point. But most of it is given over to like diversions into soccer and just city life voiceover passages where the the narrator is kind of ironically commenting on the action. The film is split into two parts. The first part kind of ends with like a five minute sequence of kids playing soccer with just music playing which is <laughs> very beautiful and but but unexpected and uh, the, the characters kind of just circle each other unknowingly for most mm. of the film the entire entire thing is like a super romantic like idyllic view of uh contemporary life and in, in georgian culture but for me the most like stimulating and interesting part of the film is like every sequence is like a new challenge or thing to be kind of uh, decoded or just to see how, how he's going to, the director's going to shoot the scene, convey the information in the scene. Cause some, like I said, some sequences are just music and visuals. Some are normal dialogue sequences. Some are voiceover. The camera's always in odd places and never focused on what you think it's going to be. And so, yeah, I don't know. It, it's not, it's very dynamic within it's the structure, but it's not like, it's not unfocused. It, it all is of a piece to me it's really beautiful and it gets to like very interesting um insights into the the human experience and and love and just contemporary life i guess it's it is a uh, unexpected at every turn i don't know what what you thought of it we haven't talked about this at all yeah it is a romantic movie i mean it has this setup that might as well be out of a fantasy or a musical basically uh, i mean in the sense that this couple is like yeah. cursed to not recognize each other before their relationship even can begin. Yeah, if this was a musical, I'm sure they'd all be singing about, about this, basically. <laughs> There's something about the movie that makes me feel that. 
city life is a huge component of it. There's a feeling that the filmmaker wants to take in the sweep, uh, the sweep of what's going on at, at any given moment in, in the city. Uh, also from a kind of democratic viewpoint that includes dogs. There's a whole sequence in the movie yeah. <laughs> where he just, he just seems to be checking in on what individual dogs in a couple of neighborhoods are planning to do next. And I mean, besides being charming, there, I mean, there also just seems to be a real feeling there that, you know, that's <laughs> those are other beings in the city that are going about their way. And I mean, and as a consequence of that, it is pretty diffuse uh, as, as a movie. I mean, just necessarily, if you're going to take that tack. Actually, just talking about it, it made me think a little bit about... Uh, the looseness in another expansive movie, Mr. Bachman and his class. Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. And Mr. Bachman and his class comes to mind just because both the films have this feeling of a jam session to me in a way, just this kind of musical, this kind of rumbling along, watching things as they kind of accumulate. I guess I did feel with this film that I, I keep saying this and this is just a movie because of the canvas it stretches out. Like I, I can't imagine how it's not much better, uh, you know, in a cinema screen. Uh, speaking of the Georgian film, oh yeah, seeing these boulevards and feeling the separation of these two young would-be lovers, and just watching all of these absurdities and coincidences, and you know, wind through the trees playing out on an actual screen that's bigger than my head. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I mean, for me, it's one of those movies where I was watching and I was constantly uh, taken aback by every new scene. Every it was like every new scene was a possibility. Like early in the film, like literally the third or fourth scene, the woman's walking home at night and the uh, inanimate objects around her start to become like sentient and start to like speak to her, like the, the traffic light and things like this. So there's all these weird narrative like possibilities that the filmmaker opens up that aren't tapped in other movies or if they are they're done in like a really cheesy manner which to me in this film they they felt very natural and there's even like literally there's a scene where that there's text on the screen telling the audience to like close their eyes and go to sleep while the characters go to sleep which this kind of stuff normally really (laughs) angers me and i don't i don't uh, go with a lot of the stuff in in movies but this was like very like beautifully done and it works with the story and then when you wake up there are different characters and i don't know it it just felt like a constantly unfolding panorama and dynamic of these two characters which yeah i I just continue to watch just in like enthralled even though there's no like plot being advanced in in most cases it's just like a really it's it's cinematic in the way that it's literally like image and music and sound in a way that i don't know it's very enveloping and it just beautiful, like magical to be very like cliche about it, but it has like all these magical elements to it. Yeah, it is magical. And it almost has this, I almost has an old fashioned feel to it. If, if, if that's a word that one can even use anymore. And I think there's something in the movie that's moving back and forth between tradition and something else as some feeling of possibility. Also, there just seems to be a interesting variety of music on, on the soundtrack. You singled out, a pretty funny sequence where school age kids are playing soccer and a kind of Italo pop anthem of some sort. I don't even know if there's any other kind of uh, Italian um, (laughs) pop music sometimes um, is playing with everyone in slow-mo and, and, um, 
but there's that and then there are all manner of like classical music and a couple ballads accompanied by guitar um with some beautiful harmonies all of that's enhancing that feel of it i just did kind of feel like why not be two hours <laughs> you know i mean i yeah no it's it's very uh it's definitely very sprawling and well to, i mean to draw one comparison we're not going to talk about the movie but like there's a movie called the girl and the spider in the berlin encounter section as well yes it's a great a very good movie wonderful movie by the zercher brothers um but it's like a very perfect object it's like a formal master class this is like the georgian film is like messy and sprawling and every it seems like every scene goes on a little bit too long or does something that you wouldn't expect, whether it's musically or with the camera. So it's very like exhilarating if, when, when you're watching movies that are like really super composed or super like formally rigorous. And then there's other films that are just like blandly, uh, you know, composed and stuff like that. So this is like one of those very free movies that it's one of the, maybe, maybe it's a movie for critics who see a lot of movies. And then uh, when, when they see something that's so like uh, uninhibited and, just like the director's willing to try everything from scene to scene. It, it's very like exhilarating to watch. I think that is true. There is something liberating watching something like this where it's, you know, you're not locked into any one sequence or any one uh, approach. And it does make me think of like a couple other Georgian movies. I, you know, people are becoming aware of films from Georgia at the, at the moment. And there is an openness that, that it shares put to very different purposes. But we actually, that's funny. You and I talked about Taming the Garden um, by another Georgian filmmaker, which is also right. in the Berlin selection. That puts a kind of openness to uh, uh, long takes. And then again, totally different film, but I do have to think of beginning just in the sense of that kind of letting scenes and sequences run out keeping open ambiguity and that sort of thing. There is definitely a resistance to that all these movies share to one scene in front of another, one shot in front of another linear quality. Um, each of them are kind of right. more trying to complicate and open things. And this is entirely um, different in that it's just very loose. And I don't think there is much of, despite the fact that it's a curse that separates them, there's not much of a sinister aspect. Although there is this kind of uh, weird frankness at one point of, and, and, and kind of, I guess it recurs about modern life, the sense that this movie is beautifully capturing daily life, but that behind it all is this indifference to basically this kind of mass death of animals that's, right. that's going on, which is said as a kind of an aside. And I was like, whoa, yeah. kind of a remarkable thing just to drop in there. I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to add on, on that one. I mean, I, yeah, Compared to, I mean, beginning in this feel to me like a new, like a Georgian cinema is coming back a little bit. That movie is much more rigorous, but this one uh, does something in a different style, a different way. That's very interesting. But yeah, there's something going on in Georgia. Yeah. I was trying to think back to what was another high profile, relatively, you know, at least in festival circles, a high profile Georgian filmmaker. And I could only recently come up with Otar Ioseliani. Right. <laughs> yeah. Who's great, you know, yeah, is quite uh, a veteran at this point. Yes. And it, but it's funny to think about that, the sort of movies he made, which I mean, he ultimately became just kind of known for these carefully orchestrated, like, I don't know, circuses of oddity uh, and, and coincidence. I mean, it's, it's almost possible to read. What do we see when we look at the sky is a kind of response to that. And that it's like 
just insistently loose. You know, it's like it's not going to really try. I mean, they're little cute little, I don't know, gags here and there, but it's you said sprawling. Indeed. But um, so that's what do we see when we look at the sky? Another movie we, I think, want to highlight. And this one I'm going to have to kind of hand the reins to you since I have not seen this movie. But it's by the filmmaker, German filmmaker, Dominic Graf. It's called Fabian or Going to the Dogs. It is Dominic Graf's uh, new theatrical feature. You might know Graf from certain films like uh, Beloved Sisters, or he made one of the parts of the Drillabin omnibus film a decade ago now. But uh, he mostly works in TV nowadays. He, he's made like literally like 50 TV movies in the last like decade and a half. Most of them are not seen outside Germany. I, I've seen a couple of them when they play at random festivals here and there. But this is his first theatrical film since Beloved Sisters. This is a, a adaptation of a book by Eric Kastner. Uh, it's set in 1931 in the Weimar Republic uh, era. It, it deals with a young man who is kind of lost in life, who does uh, you know goes out on the town in the evenings and uh, eventually gets hooked up with kind of a young young male socialist friend and ends up uh, he ends up falling for a young woman as well so it kind of deals with these three characters and how they kind of deal with kind of the encroachment of the nazi era but also it's it's a movie kind of dealing with the sex, sex and culture of of the era but i don't know graf is a as a genre filmmaker other than beloved sisters which is a different kind of genre movie but he generally makes kinetic action or uh genre leaning films this movie is shot in in that style this is like uh, a lot of handheld low res digital filmmaking mixed with some archival footage and i think some celluloid footage as well kind of looks like a late period michael mann film sometimes but he's using like almost like brian de palma-esque techniques like narrative techniques as far as like uh there's split screen and his voiceover, sort of like what we're talking about with the Georgian film. There's like ironic voiceover throughout, male and female, commenting on the action. Sometimes the characters are talking in voiceover. But it, it deals with kind of the politics of the era, but also um, just this character who who kind of has, I don't know, no real ambition in life. It's sort of like uh, the recent Pietro Marcello film, Martin Eden, except much more, uh, less political and more kind of into the, the night and culture of Berlin mm. of the era. Yeah, it's really beautiful and like spra- again sprawling film. It's three hours long. Every scene is a. It, it makes you wonder what Graf is going to do with the camera at any moment. He shoots everything in very weird angles and weird. I don't know. Everything's just set up in weird ways. It's a very cinematic film, and I know people. I've, I've already seen some reviews kind of getting on it because it's like not uh, faithful to the book, but that seems sort of beside the point for uh, a filmmaker like Graf, who's like trying to do something different with uh, the medium every time he shoots a scene. And this is, I think, one of those in- instances. And it's one of the more unique films, I think, in competition. Quite the accomplishment and one of my favorite films in competition so far. Yeah, I'm really excited to see this one. So yeah, that's that's Fabian or Going to the Dogs. Um, I know we had a couple of films lined up. I mean, I haven't seen the Denis Cote. Um, I don't know if you want to give a quick rundown. The new Denny Cote film is, for me, his first uh, real, I don't know, significant film in probably like a half decade or so. I think uh, he had a film in Berlin called Vic and Flo Saab Bear, I think in 2013 or 14, which is really great. 
but after that he's kind of a wilderness period i guess he's made some good films in that in that time but they're films in the style that you might expect or a couple that have he's tried a few things that haven't gone over that well this is kind of like a rejuvenation of his talents i think um the movie's called social hygiene it will be referred to as a pandemic film because it's uh shot in tableau framings with the actors situated quite far apart from each other and they're talking in a very theatrical style in the kind of Straubhuyer style but this is a comedy and it deals with a guy who has kind of removed himself from bourgeois life and has decided to kind of reject the women and authority figures in his life so you you see him in these extended dialogue scenes with let's see his his sister his wife his a tax collector and then a woman he's robbed because he has fallen into a life of crime and then um, also his mistress or his the the new girl he's seeing so you get these long scenes with them where he's kind of like uh (laughs) i don't know we could say mansplaining i guess but uh talking kind of like quasi philosophically about life and uh why he's living the life he is while they're trying to kind of uh confront him about his choices and it's very funny very uh extremely well written and it's beautifully shot like i said these are all almost all extended uh static shots shot in kind of the forests of quebec uh denny's a quebecois filmmaker shoots most of his films up in canada he wrote it in 2015, but it was kind of uh, spurred on by the way we're living now, obviously. <laughs> like they, uh, One of the actresses uh, suggested to him that maybe she should pick up the script again because it lent itself so well to what they could do as far as like uh, you know production protocols with COVID and whatnot. This is all written in the script, and I have an interview with Denny coming soon, which people can see in a few weeks. Uh, but he, he talks about just the way it was written and the way staging was going to be could work very well with how they would have to approach production at this point which would be obviously uh them standing far apart and talking and uh this lends itself to the themes of the film which are kind of like anxieties of the modern condition and just various uh various things of that nature which are kind of turned on their head and done in a in a humorous manner that doesn't actually deal with the pandemic per se but everything kind of seems to strangely I don't know, echo how we're living our lives today. So when you see it, Nick, I'm going to be <laughs> curious what you think of it, but it's a really beautiful movie. Yeah, it sounds like it's kind of in the in the crucible of the pandemic. I always feel like he's a filmmaker that is just on on the margins in, in a way. I've, I've never quite seen any feature filmmaker just stay somehow for in this weird way where he doesn't quite break through... He has obviously, and is, is you know sort of known quantity, appreciated quantity. So I mean, it's good to see him come back into the spotlight with a, a Berlin selection like this. So uh, that was social hygiene, Denis Cote. That brings us to a final unidentifiable work, just kind of I guess joyful and also darkly joyful sometimes, and happily perverse. This is the movie Taste by Vietnamese filmmaker uh, Lee Bao. I just feel like I must have misunderstood some part of it, which didn't really <laughs> matter because I, I enjoyed it. This is a movie that I, I actually, for one reason or another, have been tracking a little. And so I've been curious about it in the back of my mind. 
I guess it's centered on, I guess you'd say a migrant worker. He's a Nigerian football player. Like as a movie begins, you kind of see him with his jersey, but other teammates a little bit. And or he's getting like uh, tested by like trainers, it looks like. And then eventually he loses his position, which is kind of for reasons I, I don't know why. But he's left without a position as a as an athlete. And so he's in Ho Chi Minh City, but he ends up moving in with middle-aged Vietnamese women, four of them. And they kind of take up a solitary life together. And he, but he has a child back home who he video calls. And um, yeah, it's very kind of allegorical, seems to be kind of commenting on isolation and immigration, but it's shot in like a Sai Ming Liang-ish style with these kind of extended takes, but also like depth of field uh, photography where you're seeing you know, many characters strewn throughout the frame. And there's also some like legitimate Psy uh, motifs going on with like, there's a scene with uh, watermelon eating and things like that. So Lee Bao seems to be a, a young filmmaker. This is the first film. So yeah, you, you could see the reference points, but I think it, it's done in like a really beautiful, beautiful way. And it's shot like, it's a exquisitely shot. Like, I, I don't know, very few movies look like this. It kind of has a Pedro Costa-ish look as well, which is obviously up my alley. Yeah, this a really textured uh, look to all the surfaces and stylized look to all the architectural services. I mean, doing that that thing that I guess both both Sai and Pedro Costa do, where they, I mean, they must just paint all the walls, or, you know. I mean, for the purpose of <laughs> yeah. photographing in an interesting way, uh, and and this takes it to an extreme for its central, I guess, kind of centerpiece sequence. You know, as he said, the ex-football player, footballer, you know, moves into this, I don't know, almost like Escher-esque kind of house where, you know, all the rooms seem to connect to each other somehow. It's all this color of, it's not quite gray. I mean, it's it's this common background. Also, did we mention that they're all like nude entirely in this sequence? <laughs> no, we did not. But yeah, there's a extended sequences of everyone being naked. Yeah, <laughs> it gives it this kind of utopian quality a bit, you know, like they're this perfect naked collective all on their own in this building. Um, you know, they cook together. They they sometimes just seem to be, I mean, th this is also like, yeah, the, the side thing of just people doing physical activities where it's not clear like either what they're doing or what the purpose of it is. It's just very kind of stylized sometimes. And also the arrange, arrangement of people in a room is almost geometric, you know? Right. So it's very unusual. and But that gives rise to like a beautiful <laughs> sequence where he is blow drying the hair of his of, of three or four women. They're oh, all lying on a bed yeah. one after another. And so, you know, logically enough, he just... <laughs> blow dries you know their hair just runs down the line of their heads hanging over the bed and there's just something kind of very sweet about that it's totally just like an idea like a scene like that is it's, it's just like let's what would this look like you know i mean and you know and that seems to be like kind of what guides a lot of the, the mise-en-scene sometimes right i just found a lot of joy in that that seeing a filmmaker wanting to just you know put people in different positions and and right. you know taste was was uh yeah it was definitely in interesting um i mean you know there is a question of how all of this like 
submerges or yeah as you said is allegorical in in a, in a way if it submerges the traumatic or painful political aspects or socioeconomic aspects as a migrant worker in a community where he's completely an outsider right no there's clearly a racial dynamic and things going on because he's an immigrant and but this stuff isn't like it, nothing's explicated there's not a ton of dialogue it's mostly static shots of them cooking and working and doing things of that nature so it's left for the viewer to kind of uh, infer these details but I mean clearly he's like the only Nigerian person in the in the film and he's with Vietnamese women and it's very yeah you definitely can feel that dynamic being played out and like you're supposed to be grappling with these issues but it's hard to say exactly what it's getting toward at all times but as a kind of feat of like formalism and just uh composition i think it's a really beautiful movie and like we said he's a debut filmmaker and i think might be worth uh keeping an eye on in the future yeah well i think that probably brings us to the end uh, unless you have any final thoughts something i always i'm definitely feeling with every single iteration of these online festivals is like yeah not having the chance to compare notes basically yeah no, for me, it's weird because like you technically have access to more than you would at a f in-person festival because you literally can't physically go to more than X amount of screenings in a day. But like at home, when you have access to the movies during the day at, at a given point, you can, <laughs> if you're crazy enough, kind of make a schedule that uh, is very demanding. But also, yeah, you can also flip through movies, which I don't tend to like walk out or stop movies all that often. but. Yeah, that's something, I don't know, we might have to all come to grips with as we move along. Yeah, and then people keep pointing out, I keep on seeing little little comments online. Did you notice that you can watch movies at eight times speed? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't notice that for this. Maybe you can in Berlin, but I did notice that in Rotterdam where you can like speed up the film. I'm like, what is the point of speeding up the film or slowing it down? I mean, the very idea of taking that Georgian movie and playing it at eight times speed. I don't know what that would, what that would look like. All right. Well, uh, we'll call that a wrap and more to come. Jordan, thank you as always for uh, walking us through the festival and um, talking about what you've seen. No, thank you. And now I'll let you get back to the remaining hours of this 24 hour period. So you can maximize your, your movie viewing. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. The opening music is called Montserrat by The Minarets. For a list of movies discussed in this episode, sign up at rapold.substack.com. Thank you for listening.